hope you uh, have a bulletin or in the habit of picking one up. If you did, you might have noticed that the sermon notes look a little bit different today. Um, just try maybe a different way for you to think as you approach, as you hear sermons, just some things to think about, maybe a little bit of how I think through, or at least I'm trying to aim to certain ends. And, and so I'm um, just kind of capturing, like, what's the big idea? Like, wh- what did you think today as you heard the message? How did you perceive it in regards to what was the big idea? What was the main idea? There's, uh, on the left side, you see a little tab for main points. Just you're writing down, what are two or three of the main points that you heard that you want to remember? And the next column over to that, it's just opportunity for you to write down maybe more information about something. Or maybe it, it poses a question you have. Or possibly your emotions are moved. And maybe how you felt. Or maybe you connected with the passage. Like it, it spoke to an event or something that's happened in your life or currently going on. And maybe you're asking, how does this sermon point us to Christ? And so, again, those are opportunities. Uh, a thing that I'm always trying to ask myself as I approach a text, how does this text move me to worship Christ? Right? Like I want us to not just simply take information in. I want us to leave worshiping. I want us to be caught up into what's happening in the text, that our hearts are moved to worship who God is. And then last, what, what's so what? Like we hear sermons a lot like, oh, man, that was good info. But like, so what? Like what's the one thing that you're going to do in response to the message you've heard? We've got to live this, Right? It's not just informational, it should be transformational. So again, you're just trying to answer, so what? Like, what's the one thing that I'm going to do now in response to being conformed to the image of Christ as this text reveals? And so by God's grace, I hope and pray that's an encouragement to you, helpful to you um, as you write. The year was 1653. A man by the name of Bullstrode Whitelock, right? Quite the name, Bullstrode Whitelock, 1653. He is traveling to Sweden. He is an ambassador for England on behalf of Oliver Cromwell. The problem is, is that in the midst of his country, as he goes, that they're in the midst of a great civil war. The government's in tension, the church is in conflict. And as Bullstrode Whitelock goes to represent his country, he is struggling the night before. The story goes that he is anxiously pacing the floor, walking back and forth, wondering exactly what he will say, how he'll be perceived, how might his country even feel about the way he represented them. And listen to these words as he paces the floor. A trusted servant begins to ask him this question. Pray, sir. Do you not think that God governed the world very well before you came into it? He responds, undoubtedly. And pray, sir, do you not think that he will govern it quite well after you're gone out of it? Certainly. Then, sir, pray, excuse me, but do you not think that you may trust him to govern it quite well while you are still in it? It says that gripped by the conviction and the correction and rebuke from the servant that Bullstrode Whitelock went to bed and rested well that night. For some of you, that story's familiar. It was from about three weeks ago in our Sunday school. It was an opening introduction there. And so if you're in the midst of the gospel project, that one stands out to you. But I've not been able to get past that story. I've been, honestly, I took a a screenshot of it on my phone, and I've been sending it off to people, different folks. i got buddies of mine that don't live here, different folks walking through the midst of crisis. I've just been sending that story to them. Because guess what? There's people in crisis all around, aren't there? And I've just been sending that. It's been, it just keeps speaking to my life like, God, listen, you governed this world before I came into it. You'll govern this well long after I'm gone. And so, Lord, am I not convinced and by faith believing that you'll govern it quite well while I'm in it? I mean, let's be honest for a moment. When we think about it, our own lives, we're convinced about who God's been in the past. Right? We say, amen, he's the God who can part the waters when the Egyptians are chasing them. 
Right? We come in there and say, guess what? Our God's a God who'll stand with you in the midst of fire. We stand with Esther and say, amen. There's a God who will go before you and with you when you go before kings. We say amen to the God who, guess what, who can walk on water. We say amen. He's the God who can cause the blind to see, the deaf to hear, the lame to walk, the disease to be set free. He can cast out demons. Amen. And then we come to Revelation and we look and we see in Revelation 21, this God's going to bring a new heaven, a new earth. And we say, Amen. We see that there's going to be a place of no more death or no more crying. And we're like, Amen. We start singing. There's no more tears to dim what? The eye. Right? We believe it so much in Beulah Land. We start saying, Beulah Land, I'm what? Longing for you. And someday on thee I'll stand. And we say, Amen to all of that. But a funny thing happens between what God has done and what God will do. We start doubting if He's actually the God of now. We start wondering if God can still do what He's done. Our faith feels like maybe that cracked windshield where you start wondering, man, is it actually going to hold up? My guess is all of us here have or are dealing with something that causes us to wonder, is God still God and is He still good? With so much evil, we have to wonder, is God still in control? Does He see my pain? Does He care about my pain? And if He does, then why does He stop it or actually do something about it? So we are tempted to despair, tempted to give up the faith, tempted maybe for some of you to never come in faith in a God like that. Yet today's text echoes back to all of us this. All things, including evil and my pain, work together for good. All things, including evil and my pain, work together for good. As we strive after to answer this, God's answer to evil and my pain. Now listen, this statement's not an easy one to digest, right? All things, including evil and my pain, work together for good. That's not easy. So I'm going to make it my aim today throughout this message, maybe to get four things to you. One is God is in control. Secondly, he's working all things for good. Third, that Christ is indeed the answer to evil. And last, I can trust him in all things. But listen, man, that's impossible apart from the Holy Spirit. So let's just pray just for a moment. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come asking for your help to give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying unto the church. Please help me, Father, for I am a weak man. I recognize I have no ability to change hearts and minds and to conform them to the image of Christ. But that is of your work by the power of the Spirit, by the preached Word of God. And so, Lord, I trust, I hope, I believe now that all things are possible to those who believe. So, Father, for the glory of your Son, Jesus, conform every person here to the image of Jesus Christ. I pray it in Jesus' name, Lord. Amen. Number one, God is sovereign and can use all things for good. Today's text is hard. If you, if you weren't catching it when you were hearing Corey share those, right, and maybe you thought about some hard things you walked through, today's text is hard. We're talking about babies being killed. This is a hard text. Hard text. Join me if you would, Matthew chapter 2. The text is you make your way to Matthew chapter 2. If you're not already there, you, you, you realize that Jesus has been born, right? He's came to live among us. We, we've heard about the fact that Brother Todd preached about the shepherds coming that night of his birth. We, we studied last week about the Magi, these men from the east, coming and worshiping him. And, and now we hear the text picking up as these men have gone to Herod, right? The king found out where he, 
right? We heard that he's born at Bethlehem, the land of Judea, right? The prophecy, the fulfillment. They've gone now, worshipped him. The dream, right? They have a dream, tell them to go. They, they return to their land by another route. The text now picks up verse 13. It says, Now when they, speaking of the wise men, had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, verse 13, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. Why? Look, again, these, again, we talk about it all the time, but I just want to help you. Four. Here's why. Here's why this is happening. Four. Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. That's a pretty intense statement, right? For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. We have to ask, right? We need to ask this question. Is Herod a real threat to the child? Is he? A couple of things you need to know about Herod. Herod had his own wife killed because he thought that she was conspiring against him. And for good measure, he killed her, his, her mother and her brother too. Herod, listen, you, if you're wondering today, is he a real threat to Jesus? I want you to know that he had all three of his sons killed for the exact same reason. He thought they were trying to a coup to overthrow him. When Herod was inaugurated king, he invited in some of these enemies of his families as a show of peace for this great festival. But in the midst of it, he had all of these people murdered and killed. Herod, listen, if you're wondering, is Herod a real threat to Jesus? Then you have to know this, that Herod on his deathbed made this decree. He wanted, listen, when he died, all of these noblemen to be killed throughout the country so that everyone would weep and mourn when he died because he realized nobody would cry for him. Thankfully, that wasn't carried out. But you realize this is a madman killing wife, mother-in-law, brother-in-law, all three sons, having people killed like crazy, decreeing and desiring people to be killed even on his deathbed. So I want you to realize and hear this. Herod is a real threat. This isn't just idle talk. Herod is a real threat. But something is greater in the text here. Listen, I think something's greater, even more important that happened into our idea about God being sovereign. That word means God being in control. Look what happens in verse 14. And he, speaking there of Joseph, and he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. And then this statement, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. A lot's been happening in this story that we need to acknowledge. And I think it, again, reminds us of the fact of who God is, that he's sovereign, he's in control. John Piper makes a statement, and I think it's an interesting one that maybe began to even start this train of thought in my own heart and mind. He says, listen, I mean, couldn't the angel just have shown up to Joseph and Mary and said, hey, go to Bethlehem and have the baby? But instead, God moves the heart of the Caesar to take a census that would decree and now usher that Mary and Joseph would end up in Bethlehem, and therefore Jesus, who had to be born in Bethlehem, would actually be there. This is a God who moves the hearts of kings. Think about it also, though. I mean, we think back to our, our, our brothers, right? Those, those wise men from the east, those coming from Babylon area, they're from Persia, traveling from the east, following the star. I mean, couldn't God just have sent an angel to them and said, hey, listen, I want you to go to Bethlehem. My son's going to be born there and show up. But instead, God moving, showing his power over creation, sends a star that guides them from the east all the way there to the house where the child and his mother are in Matthew chapter 2. I mean, it's, it's an amazing thing. We have this madman, this moment, right? Where now he's coming to kill the children. We, we're starting to wonder, is God in control still? 
And listen, by the way, I think it's at least should perplex us that when we read this story, we think this is a madman because he's killing babies. And we don't have the same, like, indignation or horror when we see people killing babies inside the womb. Listen, yet despite this plan of evil, despite this wicked heart with his heinous plans, God is not only in control, but he is using it for good. Herod's plan to kill the children, listen, actually serves to fulfill God's plan to send his son back to where? Back to Egypt, right? To fulfill the prophecy. Listen to what he says again, verse 15. So he tells him, verse 14, listen, you got to go, get out of here. Or verse 13, verse 14, they act upon it. And listen, Matthew says in verse 15, guys, listen, this isn't happen chance. This was to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, this is a beautiful moment, right? You see this statement, out of Egypt, I called my son. Why? Because it brings up imagery of the Exodus, right? I mean, 400 years 400 years the people had been in Egyptian bondage and God raises up an emancipator by the name of who? Do you remember? Moses, right? And Moses leads them out, right? It's this great moment. And now, listen, it says there's a greater oppressor that's on the scene. He's actually already been here. Sin. And his henchman is death. And it says, listen, I want you to know that I'm bringing upon a one that's greater than Moses. One that just simply can't lead you out of this land into another land. One that's going to lead you into the promised land that is above in the, in the heavenly realms. Right? You with me? This is a greater one. This is the one that's coming. It's bringing about a greater exodus. The ultimate exodus. And what's ironic is, is that he is going to bring it about and deliver us from death by himself dying. It's ironic. It's this moment, right, of... Throughout history, most clearly seen in Christ, we see that God is sovereign. He uses all things for good, even the killing of children. Now imagine this, right? We need to be asking, though, right? It's a question that I asked. I even scribbled it down again this week. And I think I've always maybe just kind of wrestled with it. I read this story. If God saved his own son, then why didn't he save all those other boys? If I'm being honest, that's the question I ask, right? They talk about that, right? If you, if you want to teach, if you want to learn, if you want to preach, you need to ask good questions of the text. That's a real question I ask. And my assumption is, right? I mean, it may not be true for you, like that same exact question, but you got some questions, right? Why'd your mom have to die? Why'd your spouse have to die? Why do you have to fight that disease? Why does your family have to experience that divorce? Right. I mean, you've got questions because why you're experiencing certain things and you look over and other people seem to have escaped to Egypt. And you're thinking that doesn't quite seem fair. So I think we need to at least ask it of the question. And so, listen, maybe I would respond back to my own soul and maybe any of those others that are pondering this with me. Imagine this. God allows you to live a life of peace. Okay, no real heartache, no major sickness. No untimely death. You're financially secure. You retire. You travel well. Things go great for you. And then you step off the scene. And yet at the moment of death, you stand before a holy God and you are wrecked because of your sin. There's no substitute who died in your place and therefore you have to suffer the wrath of God in hell forever. Do you like that ending? The life's good. It's your best life now, of course. But it's not your best life to come. Counter that with this story. Again, imagine this. Imagine that you live a life of heartache and distress. That's hard to imagine, right? Come on. Where sickness robs you or others you love of good days. 
where death and brokenness shatter the people and relationships you care about. But because of Christ, you have peace and joy. And when you die and stand before God, there is your substitute. The sin-bearing, wrath-satisfying, holy Son of God who's standing as your advocate, as your defense when Satan brings accusations against you and God declares you innocent and guiltless because His Son took your sin upon the cross and paid the penalty for that. Might I just ask for a moment, which of those two accounts is actually more loving on God's part? To allow you to have a great life and then be thrown into hell because there's no way you can save yourself. Or to allow us to live in a world of brokenness and pain and send His Son into that brokenness and pain to rescue us out of it for eternity. Which one is more loving? I would say the latter of the two, right? Because guess what? Where we spend eternity, that is of greater proportion than anything of this life. This life is finite. It's temporary. Eternity, guys, that's forever. So listen, it's not your best, best life now. It's Christ bearing the wrath, the judgment of God that you don't have to for eternity. Therefore, we can say with Paul in Romans 8 and 28. Would you just read it with me? Is it on the screen? Just read it with me. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. And yet, as we're going to read in this story, let's be honest, man. These families are experiencing great heartache. So we got to ask, what's God's answer to this evil? How will he deal with their pain? And by, listen, if I can see how God deals with this kind of evil, this level of heinousness, this kind of pain, then might it say something about how God intends to deal with the evil and pain that I experience? So secondly, listen, Christ is the answer to my evil or to evil and my pain. Christ is the answer to evil and my pain. Look at me, Wood, beginning in verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. Listen to what he does. Again, this is who Herod is. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Right? So he hears from the wise men, when did the star appear? He makes his calculations and says, well, guess what? The child can't be more than two years old. And so he sends and has every single boy in Bethlehem or that region killed. Now, what we historians tell us is that Bethlehem was relatively small at that time. And so likely, right, maybe you wonder, why haven't I heard more about this? That's one of the questions, right? We wonder, why haven't we heard about that? Well, one of the things is because of Herod's great atrocities otherwise, right? He's done some crazy stuff. But what we find out from historians is they tell us that likely it might have been about 20 to 30 babies that would have been killed. But can you imagine that for a moment? Take that right here to Greensburg KY. Some lunatic walks into one of our daycares. Boom. Mows them down. Can you imagine the heartache? Can you imagine the brokenness? I hear my own crying. Can you imagine you never hear that cry again? It's this unbelievable moment, this terrible situation. And so my question was, how does God's Word respond to that? How does Matthew want to lead us to respond to that? Look what happens. This is interesting. Verse 17. Then, 
was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. So again, he says this isn't accidental. This is part of fulfillment, right? So this is interesting, right? So we have this, this fulfillment of the prophecy of Jeremiah. Listen to what it is, verse 18 of Matthew 2. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. And what's interesting is, is that the people had been taken into Babylonian exile, right? So you're in the period 500 to 400 B.C., right? We talked about it because Isaiah the prophet dealt with that. We've been reading through the book of Isaiah here recently, and that's what it's been reminding us of. But here's what would happen, right? As they came in there and they began to take the people into exile, they took them north into a land or to a place called Ramah. In Ramah, something unbelievably awful happened, and that's what he's referencing here. In Ramah, just north of Jerusalem, as the Babylonians were exporting or exiling the people out, families were sold into slavery. And by that, we mean that the husband would go this way often, the wife would go this way, and then children were scattered. One maybe to this one, one to this one. And in the midst of that Ramah, those mothers, those fathers, those sisters, those brothers, those grandmothers... Those friends, those neighbors, they're seeing their families, other families, torn apart and realize they'll never be with each other again. And so the prophet Jeremiah writes about this and says, can you and I even begin to fathom the weeping and loud lamentation that was happening as Rachel is weeping? Rachel personifying the people of Israel, weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted. There is no comfort. It's the dark night of the soul. And some of you have been there or you are there. And so Matthew writes in the midst of this awful situation as all of these babies are being killed. And he says, this is the fulfillment of what the prophet Jeremiah was writing about. Listen, that was awful what happened there. But this is the fulfillment of it. And it's this moment, right, that Jeremiah describes. But listen to what he says next, right? Matthew doesn't quote it for us, but listen, I want you to... Again, you hear the quote. You probably need to go and look it up to see what else is happening around it. Listen to what happens here further. So that was verse 15. He's he's quoting of Jeremiah 31. Listen to what happens next in verse 16. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back. Listen, there's a hope. He says, listen, guys, this is awful now. Again, he's not minimizing the pain. Right? He's just telling them, listen, there's something greater. Listen, he says, they shall come back from the land of the enemy. Listen to this statement. There is hope for what? Your future. Man, what if you just heard that today? What if some of you, that just landed on you today? Despite the, I mean, again, this is awful. Rama is where the families are being split apart. Matthew prophesies and says, this is fulfillment of that in Matthew 2. Babies being killed. This is awful of the awful. Right? I don't know how bad yours is, but this is, I, I can't imagine much worse than this. I don't know how bad yours is, but I can't imagine it's, it could be much worse than this if it's even that close. And he says, listen, guys, I want you to know that you'll come back from the land of the enemy and there's still hope for your future. Right? What a moment. 
Yes, listen, they're going to come back from from the Babylonian exile, right? They're going to be brought back into the promised land. But listen, there's something greater than the exodus back. And as, as Matthew chapter 2 there, verse 13 told us, or verse 15, that out of Egypt I call my son. There's something greater than the exodus out of Egypt. He says, I want you to know, Matthew's sounding the all five-star, four-star alarm. He's sending it across every page or everything's going off saying, guys, this is the ultimate hope of rescue. In the midst of our sorrow and this unbelievably awful evil that's happening, Matthew says, guys, I know it's so hard to see right now, but I want you to know there's still hope. What if that today just whispered to your soul? I know some of you, man, you're combative, right? I mean, you're already there. You're in that stance. Because of the evil that's happening, the pain that's in your heart. You, you, man, you're ready to fight. You don't even hear God's word. You're shoving it back right now because you don't think there's any hope of a future. And that's why, listen, some of you who've already been through the valley need to be testifying, sharing your story of the faithfulness of God for those who are in the midst of the valley who think there's no way out. And yet you're quiet. Come on. Need your story. I need your story to remind me there's still hope for a future. It's an unbelievable moment. And it listen, guys, it says to us, we are reminded, Matthew says, listen, Herod's time of ruling and reigning is temporary. So as it will be with Hitler and Stalin and bin Laden and every other madman, demon-possessed lunatic that steps upon the scene of the earth, their reign and rule is temporary. This king is eternal. Remember, listen, he was born king of what? King of the Jews. He is a different kind of king. Listen, he will conquer death, not cause it. He's not Herod. He's the king. Listen, Jesus is the king who will heal your wounds on the cross, not inflict them. Jesus, listen, is the king who will carry your sorrows, not plot how he can bring more sorrow to your life. Herod and other rulers looked to exploit the people for their own good, and Jesus was exploited for your good. That's my king. That's my king. Right? Come on now. He's not in the White House. He's in God's house. Come on. That's my king. Man. But still, right, I'm wrestling. Right? Why didn't God save the other children? Right? We, we contended from our first point that God is making good by sending His Son to rescue us. But maybe we need to ask, how will God bring good from this evil? And all evil, for being honest. When will God bring good from the evil and pain that I've experienced? Because listen, despite the hope of Jeremiah's prophecy, despite the hope of Christ coming, these babies are still dead. And so it is for some of you. Your spouse is not coming back. You were alone this Christmas. The grandmother or grandfather that you love is gone. The brother or sister, the co-worker that was such a friend to you, the disease that is wrecking the life of people you care about at this exact moment. Things aren't changing. And you and I must ask this question. Will God make it right? Will He make it right? And if so, then I need to know and you need to know when will He do it. And listen to what James says to a people as he writes about suffering in the fifth chapter of the book of James, verse 7. 
Be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until what? The coming of the Lord. He says, guys, it's not coming yet. You've got to wait patiently. Look, long for the day when Christ returns. You see how your pain and Christ's goodness now gives life to our prayers. Do you see that there's going to come a day when God will make it right until the coming of the Lord? Be patient in the midst of it. Do you see though now how in the midst of suffering and hope of texts like this and the hope of texts like Matthew and the hope of what we see in Christ and the hope of longing in Revelation 21, do you see how it begins to ignite in you and me as we begin to pray, Thy kingdom what? Come, we're ushering it, God, please. Please, God, this pain, this evil, these atrocities, rape, murder, incest, evil brokenness, Oppression, racism, hatred, all of the things that are happening, poverty, dying of starvation, lack of medicine, lack of doctors, anger between nations. We now, beloved, as you and I pray, Thy kingdom come. We are crying out, God, please come back. Because when we know that He comes, He is the Prince of Peace and His rule, according to Isaiah, will know no end. The government will be upon His shoulders. What a wonderful God. I don't know about you, beloved, but listen, I have to hope and trust in that. I have to land here because if not, then there is no peace. There is no hope. You see, today, if there is no God, if there is no afterlife, if there is no judge, then Herod has won. You with me? If there is no God, if there is no judge, then the school shooter seems to have been victorious. If there is no God who can redeem our bodies and raise us unto life, then cancer laughs and mocks at me as I look at my father's grave. Are you with me? This means something. It's the word of God. Come on, I'm with you, baby. I feel it too. Listen, the gospel is the story of Jesus that says an emphatic no to all of the evil and pain. It says you have not won. You do not have the last word. I stand victorious. And as Job says, my Redeemer lives and I shall see Him walk upon the earth because He is King of kings and He is Lord of lords. That's the God you worship today. That's why it's a Merry Christmas in the midst of Bah Humbug. Man, how does He rescue you from a world that's ruined by sin under the curse? How does He do it? By becoming a curse for us, beloved. By Him experiencing injustice as the only... He experiences the ultimate injustice, right? He's the only sinless person who's ever tried and condemned as guilty for something He didn't do. He takes the rap for all of us. He places His head under our guillotine. So that now, even in the midst of all the evil and pain, we can see the truth. The light is shining in the darkness. As John says, the darkness is not what? It's not overcome it. Christ in power, as we sing, resurrected, will have his final say. So since Christ is God's answer to evil and my pain, we might need to ask today, how should I live? Maybe it's worth a statement just like this. Because God is faithful, I can trust him in all things. Because God is faithful. I can trust Him in all things. 
The last part of Matthew chapter 2 might seem less important or less inspiring because we've seen this unbelievable atrocity happening and Matthew's telling us there's hope because this new king is coming. He's not like Herod. But listen, I, I believe this last section can still have profound impact upon your life. So listen to it if you would. Begin in verse 19. But when Herod died, hallelujah, there's going to come an end. It's going to come an end. But our king, he'll never die. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. Can you imagine you're going to a place eternally? There's no more threat to you or your children. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called what? What's the city's name? Oh, Nazareth. Well, guess what he says? This is not accidental. This is important. So that what was spoken by who? The prophets might be fulfilled. That he would be called a Nazarene. This isn't accidental. Now listen, this, this, this hinges upon what we've already established. God's sovereign control of all things. So even Archelaus, who is ruling, right? Archelaus back up here. Um, yeah, right here in verse 22. Listen, he's reigning in the place of his father. He's an evil king too. He's a bad guy. Alright? One bad guy for another. But listen, we, we see this and realize it's not accidental. Why? Because even God is using these evil kings who raise up and reign and have these awful atrocities. He's using it for his glory and his good. And if he's using it for Christ's glory and Christ's good, that means it's for your good too. Because you're in Christ. You're a co-heir with Christ. Now listen, here, listen, we might though, we might though, as we hear verse 23, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, we might begin to question God's plan, right? His intent for good and how he can allow something like this to happen. Why? Because, listen, Nazareth is not glamorous, right? I mean, you're in John chapter 1 with Nathaniel when he asked, can anything good what? Come out, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Right, I mean, when you list Nazareth, right, if that's on your resume, they just chuck it in the trash. You with me? I mean, Nazareth is like when you stay at the Motel 6 and everybody else stays at the Marriott. You with me? Nazareth is like when you have breakfast at, at the gas station, everybody else is sitting down at Cracker Barrel. It's not, listen, Matt, Nazareth is a place you want to go through. You don't want to be from there. Some of you feel the same thing about Greensburg. And yet that's the very place God's put you. So listen. We've already seen, listen, that God's plan is not our plan, right? I mean, Jesus' post-birthday shower list, his A-list includes stinky shepherds. That's who comes to his party. If we're writing the story of a king, we don't write this in part of the script. But listen, guys, there's a moment of revelation that realizes that needs to be made. That God's plan is not our plan. God's ways are not our ways. So maybe just to throw a couple applications at you, one. Nazareth reminds me that I don't have to force it. It may seem like a small thing, but Jesus not only going to Nazareth, but he actually is a fulfillment of the prophets being a part of Nazareth and calling a Nazarene. Most of us, listen, we think that we can somehow best get ahead. That's what we're thinking about, right? I mean, we think, how can I best help my children or myself get in the best school, be on the best team, be in the best organization, Right? We're often wondering, listen, I mean, where can I go to put them in the best opportunities for growth and all that? Listen, I'm with you. Those things are good. 
But yet we have God's Son, not accidentally, but intentionally, according to God's perfect wisdom and plan, in Nazareth. And we have to ask, right again, can anything good come from Nazareth? And I compel us today as we see this moment. Nazareth reminds me, I don't have to force it. Why? Because I can follow in Christ's footsteps. We can humble ourselves to be okay wherever God has placed us. If that's in Greensburg, then that's where I want to be. If it's being an assistant, even though you think you should be the CEO, learn to be content with where God has you. Maybe the coach sees you as the ninth man and you think you're the second man. Some of you, maybe you're wondering today, I can't believe this church hasn't asked me to teach yet, to be a trustee, to be a deacon, to lead the WMU. They don't realize what they have. Listen, it's not easy to be from Nazareth, and it's not easy to sit in the seat of Nazareth. But that's your king. And as much as we love all the other stuff that we've heard about and been proclaiming today about how he's going to overcome, that's our king, the humble servant. And so it reminds me today to humble myself. And rather than grumbling and complaining about where we are not, we need to begin to worship and serve faithfully where we are. It's hard because you want to move up the ladder. You want it bigger and better. You want greater. You want more prominence. You want a bigger platform. Listen, I get it. I fight all of that in my own heart. I want it for my own kids. I struggle with it when it doesn't happen for them. I'm going, ah, right? But we need to rather listen and grumbling and complain about where we are not. We begin to worship and serve God faithfully where we are. Why? Because after all, we are where God has put us. And when God wants to put you, your children, your grandchildren, your mama, your daddy, your granny, whoever, somewhere else, guess what? He's powerful enough. He can do it. So Nazareth reminds us that I don't have to force it. Whatever God wants to do in my life, in the life of my children, in the life of this church, He is going to do it. And I just need to be faithful to worship and serve where I am. You with me? Second and last, by faith, I will trust God in my suffering. Today, you have to make some type of major decision about this text. Right? Do you believe that God is actually sovereign and in control? Because do you believe, right, that He is good? He's working all things together for good. This isn't easy because, listen, if you believe this, I want to tell you, this is hard, then that means that nothing that you and I have experienced was beyond His control. That means He could have stopped this with these babies here. It means He could have stopped the murder. He could have stopped the accident. He could have stopped the cancer, the suicide, the rape, the overdose, the divorce, the child from dying, and on and on. So listen, let's be clear. If you are holding to the fact that God is actually in control of all things, then there's some rub to that. But let's take the other side. What if you don't think He's in control? What if the accident, the murder, the suicide, the cancer, what, on and on and on, wasn't in His control? If it's not in His control, then we have no hope that it can actually be used for good. So I'm hoping that God who knows all, who loves all, who's all-powerful, who's all-present, is actually going to use everything that's happening for good. And if He has allowed and permitted it, then I know somehow by the power of Christ and for the glory of Christ, He is going to bring good from evil and my pain. But that, listen, beloved, that calls for faith. Faith that you will trust God in your suffering and pain. 
despite, listen today, you just need to walk away saying, despite how I may feel, despite how it may look to me and others, when I see Christ dying for me in the midst of my sin, I know this truth, that God is for me and not against me. Right? When you see Christ, the sinless Son of God, dying for you, not when you cleaned up your life enough, but in the midst of your sin, you are convinced that God is actually for me and not against me. Therefore, by faith, I choose to believe that if He brought my greatest good, eternal life, out of the greatest evil ever done, the sinless Son of God, then He will bring good from what I am facing to. Are you with me? If He brought my greatest good, eternal life, him presence with His presence forever, out of the greatest evil ever done, the sinless Son of God dying on our behalf, then I know and I can trust that He will bring good from what I am facing to. I leave you today, beloved, in the midst of a world of evil and so much personal pain. I leave you with these words to maybe ponder and meditate this past week and this coming week. It's verse 31 and 32 of Romans 8. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, what? Who can be against us? Listen to this. I love verse 32. You've got you to gotta just take this in your soul. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give what? Us all things. If he gave you your greatest need, beloved, that you never earned or deserved, he gave you your greatest need, the payment of your sins, will he not give you everything else you need as well? He's done the greatest thing. You can't trust him for the lesser things? That's what Paul's saying. It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. He's saying he's giving you the greatest thing you'll ever need. Salvation, forgiveness of sins. Can you not trust him to give you everything else? And that's why Paul is saying, if God is for us, who can be against us? Let's pray, beloved. Father, thank you for the victorious name of Jesus Christ. God, we confess it as our Lord and our Savior, our only hope. And God, I acknowledge and bow in this place to say, Jesus, you are my King. And Father, I pray that all others in this place too can bow. And I pray they will confess this day and hour that Jesus is their King. He's their Lord and Savior. And Father, I pray for those who are already in Christ that no matter what they're facing, they will realize if God has met their greatest need, He'll meet all others as well. Lord, let them by faith today, not by sight, trust that You are going to bring good from the evil and pain they experience. I pray this for the glory of Christ. Amen. This is Todd Young with Greensburg Baptist Church. Thank you for joining us today. If you've accepted Christ during today's podcast, we would love to hear from you and connect you with a home church in your area. Or if you have questions regarding a relationship with Christ, Brother Blake and I would love to speak with you. Please contact us at the church office at 270-932-4495 or connect with us through our website at greensburgbaptist.com. In addition, you may visit our website anytime to access the sermon videos and podcast of any recent sermon. You may also subscribe to our podcast in the iTunes store. Have a great day today.